Welcome to the Carrero Podcast. Before we get started today, we would like to inform our listeners that Carrero is supported by edX Global. It's an international nonprofit where we work with K-12 students as they work with their local and global communities, providing service learning activities. In 2022, we are asking for your support in raising $20,000. It is to assist our students and their activities in creating gardens for schools and communities, purchasing and delivering blankets for the homeless, providing curriculum for teachers across the world, purchasing backpacks and filling them with educational items for students in need, and collecting and delivering food and toiletry items for the local homeless organizations. You can donate with Venmo using at edacts-global, or you can go to our website, which is www.edxglobal.org, spelled edacts G-L-O-B-A-L dot org and donate. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi there. Today, our guest you might recognize, she's been a guest of ours before, Christiane Sines. Christiane is a fourth grade teacher at Westmont Elementary, a VAPA school, which means visual and performing arts, in Ocean View School District in Huntington Beach, California. After receiving her bachelor's degree in theater and years of touring the world and living out of a suitcase, Christiane realized she needed to do something more and wanted to make a difference. So she went back to school to earn her teaching credential and master's of education from Cal State Fullerton, graduating in December of 2020. Student teaching both before and during the worldwide pandemic prepared Christiane for one of the most trying times in education there's ever been. There have been many hurdles in her first year of teaching, but Christiane truly believes her students are going to change the world. Christiane, so good to see you today. So good to have you on our podcast once again. Thanks for having me. Of course. So you recently finished your master's and your credential. And <laughs> yeah, big deal, especially in California. It's so hard. Uh, and you did it during COVID. So yeah. can you tell us? what that experience was for you finishing your master's and your credential during a worldwide pandemic. It was a blessing and a curse all at the same time. Um, but I think that it prepared me for, Oh my gosh, so much that I'm going through right now. Um, it was very cool and fun to be part of both dynamics, which many people probably won't say, but I got to do student teaching in person for my first semester And then we're in our second semester and we shut down because of COVID. So then I had the opportunity to virtually teach my second uh, student teaching semester to TK, um, which I thought would be my nightmare, but it ended up being a lot of fun uh, virtually because TK kids, you try keeping them on a computer screen in their own home doing what you need them to do. but it was, it definitely prepared me for teaching now and getting out there. And I think technology, being able to navigate through Zoom and any other uh, tools that we've had, especially in our program, technology was huge. We were taught how to use all these tools. So I think I was one step ahead of a lot of teachers, including my master teacher, um, when I was doing the program. So it was, it was a roller coaster because I do like to look at it as I got to do my master's and stay home and not have to worry about work as much because we were shut down. But at the same time, I think that was what I was most worried about was that last semester of writing my final project and um, doing all of that while going to work. And I didn't have to worry about that instead because, well, we shut down. So that's where it's a blessing and a curse <laughs> all at the same time. What were, what were the two things that you learned most about yourself during this time? Oh, my gosh. Um, I learned patience. 
Um, definitely patience. I actually learned that sounds, this is going to sound like to toot. I'm going to toot my own horn right now. That's what you're supposed to do. Ooh, right. I, I learned that I can do it. And I was like, man, I am a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And yeah. And that was something that it, it took a pandemic for me to realize, like I have tools and I, I know how to use them. So it actually made me more confident in my teaching and more confident in what I was doing. Um, so, and you're a, you're a first year teacher. So let's just you yes. know, remind our listeners, oh, you're yes. a first year teacher. <laughs> Do yeah. you think that other first year teachers feel that same way, but you entered the program later in life. So mm-hmm. do you think that it's because of your life skills that you have, or do you think that it was the program I'm leading you or, <laughs> or do you think that it was just your personality? I mean, all of these things. Yes. But what do you think? No, I think it's all of those rolled into one. Um, I, I definitely think that being, you know, coming into the program and coming into teaching later in life um, definitely helped because well, all my other jobs did have to do with children. Like I coached, I worked with children, I nannied. Um, so I was prepared in that, but I've worked alongside of many, for, I'm working alongside first year teachers and I feel so far ahead of them. And I will, I will credit Cal State Fullerton. I do think that the program there was, it was so difficult and I shouldn't say difficult, challenging yet rewarding because now the things that I'm doing, like even my principal in a meeting has been like, you're a first year teacher. Where did you get all of these tools? Where did you learn how to do this? She's like, this doesn't come just naturally. And I do credit some of my background, but also the, the rigorous program at Cal State Fullerton, they, the ins and outs. And I think especially right now, Fullerton focuses so much on like SEL and, you know, inclusion and everything that we are realizing after a worldwide pandemic that that SEL is one of the most important tools that we can have in our classroom. So I think it's a mix of everything, but I am just a big kid myself. So I think I talked about last time, like I dress up, I dress up as a penguin. I've dressed up as, you know, uh, Hermione. I was, oh gosh, who was I the other? Matilda just a couple weeks ago. So I just want to bring fun to the classroom. So, and I think that that's not always something that can be taught. It's just in here. So with, with, with that being said, what, what did you learn about students and families that, that you may not have learned if the pandemic didn't happen? Oh man, I would say we, we being all the teachers and myself learned how much they don't actually have at home, at least mine. I'm at a title one school and the resources, you know, when they shut down, we might've given them a computer. We might've given them a hotspot, but they weren't always on And their stories of like some of, some of my students getting on zoom, mom or dad would go open the computer, turn it on, sign them in and the kids sleeping because they just signed them in to be there. But like the kids weren't ready. Um, I've learned that they don't learn well over just, you know, Zoom. The kids are so hands-on. And so, you know, there's so much learning loss from that. They have to be moving. They have to be in groups. They have to talk to each other. Um, And, you know, I think that was a big adjustment coming into the classroom right afterwards was they didn't know how to share. They didn't know how to share their feelings. They didn't know how to open up. And they were almost scared. Like if scared walking into a classroom, if their mask wasn't there, I still have kids that will like cover their face and walk in. I'm like, you're okay. You're okay. But I think just, you know, not knowing how to do it for them. They didn't have the support system at home. Um, Mainly because it was, you know, parents were working still and the kids were either at home alone or they had older siblings or cousins or someone that was supposed to hold them accountable. So our kids are either very mature for their age or very immature for their age. I would say that none of our kids are actually acting their age. It's one or the other. 
So as a, as a follow-up, where do you think, um, where do you think teacher, both teacher, teacher education, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think after this pan, pan pandemic, uh, what teacher ed- education should be doing with regards to their programs in, in, in training future, future teachers in working with um, kids and families? I think that they're doing it. And speaking of that, kids and families, I think a lot of what we lost a lot of were partnerships with families, like trying to get, you know, and we learned a lot about that in our program too. There's parents are just not involved right now. Parents don't know how to be involved because it's been two years of not being able to be in the classroom, not being able to volunteer. And we're just now allowing parents to come back and volunteer. Um, I think that what I see most out of being a brand new teacher versus the teachers I'm working with that have been there for 20 plus years is, like I said, the, the social emotional learning and getting to know our students and being able to adjust with them. There's a lot of, I hear a lot of, I didn't sign up for this. If I wanted to be a social worker, I'd be a social worker. If I wanted to be a counselor, I would have been a counselor. I want to teach. But what they're not realizing is times have changed. And even without a worldwide pandemic, education is changing, right? It's changing every day. And we're realizing these are things that students have always needed and never received. So they need to change with it. So I think what, like what I see at Fullerton, I'm not sure about other programs, is that's something that we were taught and something that they, you know, value. And so I think that for any newer teachers, including older teachers, like we need to step in and say, SEL is important partnerships with parents are important because you need them. You're not, if you don't have the partnerships with parents, you're not, your school's not going to succeed because your kids aren't going to do their homework. Teachers need to constantly be in contact with not necessarily parents, but caregivers, right? Whoever's taking care of those children at home. It might even be a big brother. So like I had a student the other day who he, I just found out because you find out everything. I knew his dad was in Mexico I knew his mom was here and he lived with mom. And I always thought he would always come back late after breaks. I always thought his parents were divorced. He's going to Mexico, you know, staying with his dad a little bit. And then he said, my mom's in Mexico with my little brother. It was over his birthday. And I was like, it clicked. I'm like, oh, mom and dad are still together. Dad just can't come to the U.S. And so I said, oh, so who are you here with? And he said, my brother. I was like, how old is your brother? And he was like, hey, 18. And this kid used to be tardy, like when his mom's in charge, bless her. He's tardy. He misses days. He was there every day on time. And I was like, you need to go give a shout out to your brother because he's got you here. You know, so I was like, but those are the things we're learning as well about our children. But sometimes the older siblings are in charge and they're stepping in. So at that point, I was like, man, I've been communicating with your parents and I need to be communicating with your brother because he's the one who's watching you right now. So it taught me to kind of ask those questions as well. Can you describe the learning loss that you experienced with your students over COVID? Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's so much learning loss. Um, Yeah, so what I notice, I teach fourth grade. And what I've noticed is they don't know how to tell time. They don't know how to do measurement and geometry. Those are all missing you know, little compartments. And when I put it together is last year, right after I graduated, I got a job for the end of the year as we were opening back up from COVID and going back to in-person. I got a job in this district for just the end of the year and I taught second grade. Um, And that would be when my fourth graders were in second grade when COVID hit. So I was able to kind of put the pieces together to realize when I came in, I was teaching measurement. I was teaching time. I was teaching money. My fourth graders never got to learn that. And then they went into third grade and in third grade that we have priority standards in my district. So they go through and they pick which standards we should be teaching due to COVID. It's like, these are the most important ones, which are division, multiplication, addition, not measurement, time or money. So because of this, they're still losing those, you know, content standards. So I have kids that when they or tests at the beginning of the year and kids that fall into kindergarten in reading and math. And then I have some that are at, at the beginning of the year, we're at third grade, which would have been the placement that they should be for that time. 
and they ranged everywhere. So they're all about a year and a half to two years behind. And we're trying to play catch up now. Um, and thanks to standardized testing right now, I was trying to play catch up of two years of learning loss because they're still getting tested as if they never had those two years of COVID. So they're getting these, you know, regular tests. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my kids don't know how to do measurement or angles or anything. And I have to teach them in three weeks before they have to test. So unfortunately they're just so, some are so far behind. Like I do groups. I can't, I can barely even do full group teaching. I have to constantly be in groups because they're at so many different levels. Um, But it takes pretty much three different lesson plans, three different activities, three different workloads, one's three lessons ahead in this chapter and some are a whole chapter behind. Um, but that's the way I have to teach in order for them to all continue learning and not leave any behind. And that's, so. that's the way differentiation is supposed yeah. to look. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's just a testament to you as a teacher um, to reiterate that you are a really good teacher because <laughs> that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work on you. It is. Um, it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't just, you know, like pick up the curriculum that the district has given you and say, okay, mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're in week 12 of the semester and this is what we're supposed to be doing because yeah. it's not, you're, you're teaching the child. You're not teaching the curriculum and that's what you're supposed mm-hmm. to be doing. So That's amazing. Uh, So now as a first year teacher, you're trying to clear your credential because in California, you have to do a teacher Mm. induction program (laughs) because it is so fun to be a teacher in California. Yep. Can you describe what this induction program is like for you? Of course. And induction, I didn't actually know what I was getting into. I think when I became a teacher, I didn't know I would have to go get my credential. I could earn my master's simultaneously oh but then I have to go back to school pretty much for two years to go into induction so the way it works in California is you're you're still pretty much taking classes it's kind of like I'm student teaching all over again because I have a mentor I have to hand in lesson plans they have to evaluate me I have to do um, an ILP an individualized learning plan which is In my district, every district is different or every course for induction is different. But at ours, I have kind of liked it because I'm I'm a nerd and I do love to learn. So what it challenged me with in ours was we had to pick a tool and then a tool meaning it could be exit tickets. It could be, um, you know, maps of some sort. And I would have to then use that in the classroom and then do three lessons with it and then adjust accordingly to all my learners. And I had to like label where my learners were landing in this rubric ILP. And I chose uh, the hyper rubric, which is something a lot of people, it's brand new to me, brand new to most educators, I think. Um, So I chose the hyper rubric, which is a rubric that's not so much focused on just the content because a traditional rubric is very, you know, criteria, you, they have your little numbers, you get a one, two, three, four, five, and it can be very negative instead of positive, which is there are three or more errors. There are two or more errors. And the hyper rubric focuses more on the progression of learning and teaching students how to progress in a positive um, impact. And it also is ever changing and it constantly changes. So I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, There are five different levels of the hyper hyper rubric. There's beginning, I have to think now, developing, approaching, applying, and extending. And I had to do it because it was new to my students and new to me. We had to do like an I do, we do, you do, but multiple times so they could understand exactly what I was asking of them. And beginning is just like your basic. So like they would have to write, um, I was all for comprehension. So I was saying I was going to use a hyper rubric uh, to help my students with the comprehension and finding like the main idea um, and the point of view of the author and all of that. So they had to write and I made them write paragraphs as well. So the beginning would just be, I can 
uh, write two sentences. That's it. I can write two sentences about the story, you know, that I learned. And then we go to developing and they know that beginning means good start. Developing means great start. You need a little bit more. And that would go to, I can write and fill out a thinking map because I use thinking maps as well, but that wasn't mine. Cause we had to, in our adoption program, I used the hyper rubric because we had to use a tool that we've never used before and then apply it to our classroom. And so, um, I was able to get my class, they move up through it. So the best part about it is they're in charge of their own learning with it. So they can go and I can say, you're at beginning and they self-assess. So I would give it to them on, um, Google classroom, you know, in slides and they would move a check mark. So go back to your reading. Where do you think you land? And they could say, and a lot of them were honest and they'd be like, I'm at developing. And so I would say, you are at developing how can we move up to approaching? Here are some things you can do. And it, the whole criteria was there for them on what they need for approaching. I can write three sentences uh, about uh, the main idea of the story and fill out each thinking map individually. So it told them what they needed to do, not what they weren't doing, so that they could pretty much check the boxes and then keep moving themselves along this hyper rubric. And then once they got it and they're extending, I can change the whole hyper rubric and continue to progress them forward in their writing. So now they're writing multiple paragraphs and all of that. So it was actually really fun to do. I learned a lot about myself and the hyper rubric doing it because the first time I did it, I was like, that didn't work the way I wanted it to. Hmm. And that was the whole point of it for induction. Sure. So then I would say, here's what I need to change. I need to, my thinking maps for my beginning learners I need to fill out the thinking maps for them because maybe that's too challenging. If I want them to find the main idea, I can fill out the thinking map for them and they can circle the things they want to write about. And then my other learners can fill out the thinking maps, you know, so it kind of just progressed with them. Um, but it was, it was fun to do also because when we had to rate ourselves for the program, the rubric they gave me, was very much just like the four steps. It was like, you have, yeah, it was like, where the are irony. your kids falling? Yeah. It's like, where are your kids landing after you've done this on the rubric? How did they go as far as it was like beginning? And then it was approaching and then applying and I think exceeding. But I was able to write to them, like, what were your challenges? And I said, well, if you look at my hyper rubric, there's no developing. It's either my kids are getting it or they're not getting it. And so you're asking me, I have a lot of kids that are falling in that developing and I have to mark them as not even close falling far. It said far below the standard was their um, verbiage that they used in it. And I'm like, they're not far below the standard. They're still, they're, you know, developing into it. Yeah. And so I was able to give them that feedback back where I was like, maybe we need to change our rubric for your ILP because it's, it's not very inclusive for all my students. <laughs> it sounds like you could have a job in California teaching standards and <laughs> uh, maybe hint, hint, someone help me out. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and that's, and that's kind of what I was, I was going to be asking is um, where, where do you see the state of the standard rubrics with, or with regards to, to the hyper hyper rubrics do you where do you see educators using these or do you do you think educators are are going to wish to keep the standard one or transition into the hyper rubric yeah that's a great question the best part about the hyper rubric is it can be used literally in any subject it can be used in math because of the different develop, like the phases of it and them developing and um, progressing through it, they can go and check their boxes there. Now, the hard part I think as far as educators go is it's a lot of work. So I have to look at each individual student and kind of you know change the rubric for them. So it's going to be the other ones, easy to grade because they either have it or they don't. Five, four, five, four, you know, like three, they didn't have this. But to me, that's not, they're not learning, right? It's not teaching them anything. It's just showing them what they did. You got this score. Okay, done. 
where if I want to create and teach a, a student how to write, there needs to be the progression and the progress through that. And that's where the hyper rubric comes in. I think that if a teacher truly wants to be an educator and watch their students advance and progress, then they will get on board with it. And it's just coming up with the, it's, it's coming up with the verbiage that you need to put in your hyper rubric because it does change so often. So I think it would be, if every educator could do it, I think we'd see a lot more progress um, in all our student learning. It also teaches them to, like I said, self-assess and self-progress because I'm not pushing them as if they want to. Because I would ask them, if you want to move up to extending, here's what you need to do. And some of my kids are like, I'm happy with applying. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you're happy with applying. I know exactly who you are. You know, and I knew which kids would. But then I have some students, because I always give them notes on it. I would read and say, here's how you can get to extending. Why don't you add these? Who, it, who are you talking about? And why? You know, and I would give them examples. They'd be like, oh, got it. And they'd go back and they would change it. And so when I went back last week, we were doing our standard or, you know, state testing and they have to do the performance task part where my kids have to write. And I kept telling them, you guys, I've prepared you for this. You know how to write, you know how to write paragraphs. And I kept saying to them, think about where that hyper rubric, ask yourself those questions and see where you land. And I had many students that I, at the beginning, I think would have written one sentence and just be like, I'm good, done. But there were some that I was like shocked that they were still writing and they had oh, paragraphs and they had cool. their thinking maps written out. And I'm like, I, I toot my horn again. I was like, I did that. I, <laughs> I got them there. <laughs> well, so. I, I think that's what's, that's what's critical is that a, a lot of people, like, especially the state of California, they want people to, um, especially students, to self-assess. And mm -hmm. oftentimes it's, it's difficult, one, especially when you're working with uh, kids with kids with special needs, which is a, you know, something a totally different topic, but yes, what you, but, <laughs> but, what, but what you were saying is, is vital is that if, if, if students could use the hyper hyper rubric and if teachers take that time to implement this more, then we're going to have students who could critically self self-assess more. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it is a great tool, even for those who do have the special needs, um, because no matter what it is, there's a place for them on there. And so they can move up within their own, you know, time. I have, obviously, I have students who are all over the board with, especially some we don't even know, right? Like, can they, I have some that can't even form or couldn't even form a sentence and now can write more than one sentence, but I'm teaching them how to do that process. So with the hyper rubric, instead of just saying you, because some of them, for some of those students, their beginning would be, I can write a sentence using capitalization and punctuation. So it's reminding them to use capitalization and punctuation sure. instead of just saying, um, grammar, check, you didn't get any points. You know, I'm showing them, this is what, go back to it and be like, oh yeah, I have to go, make sure my eyes are capitalized. I have to put a period here. Sometimes they're not in the right spots, but they're remembering to do those things. So yeah, it's, it's fun. <laughs> so the hyper rubric name kind of comes from like the hyper doc, um, idea, mm -hmm. the technology background. Um, it's not like common vernacular in education. So where'd you, mm -hmm. where'd you learn about this? How'd you come up with it? A podcast, of course. <laughs> um, my good friend, uh, Dr. Hoffman, I'm pretty sure, which is like, you should listen to this podcast. It's about this hyper rubric. And I think it's right up your alley and you'll think it's interesting. And then I listened to it and I was like, yes. So then I decided to research it. And this was before I knew it was going to be part of my induction. I was just like, okay, what is this hyper rubric? And how can I use it? And then right away at the beginning of the year, I was like, I'm going to learn how to, how to use this with my classroom. And that's why I said I had to do the, I do, we do, you do, because even in all my research, they talked about like, it's going to take time 
because you have to show the students how to get there and how to, you have to teach your students how to self-assess <laughs> because they're not going to just be like, here I am. No, look back and teach them all that. So I learned it from a podcast, of course, and it was just, it went on about the traditional rubrics and how the criteria had kind of a negative view because um, it was just so concrete to meet. They don't do this. They do do this. So I went in and researched it on my own through that podcast and through the developer, the people who talked about it on there. And um, from there, kind of just took their steps and put it into practice. So. And then, and then how would you, or obviously it sounds like you're going to keep on using it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, are there, are there modifications in which, which you would, you would use? Yeah, I, I need to figure out still, because I've only, so far, I've only used it in um, ELA, so English language arts, and more with writing. And I want to develop and be able to use it, like I said, with math. Now, like, my next steps will be try to plug it into different subjects. Okay. Um, right. And right now, it's all been very much, um, you know, it's technology is how I, kind of apply a lot of my stuff for my students, especially because after shutting down, we learned that we need it more. We actually had no internet last week. I think our whole district went down and I was like, no one knew what to do. We're all like, how do I teach? <laughs> and like, that's, that is what this pandemic has done to us where we've relied so much on technology. Now that internet goes down and no one knows how to teach anymore. And it's like, Oh, oh get your books out, I guess, <laughs> uh, get a piece of paper and a pencil. You know, even the kids were like, well, what are we supposed to do? And it's like, right. Use your hands. Yeah. Um, but I'm totally getting off the question there because I thought about oh, technology, but yeah, I want to be able to change it and adapt the hyper rubric now for other subjects to see how it can, I mean, even can, it can apply to art. Or a VAPA school, visual and performing arts. Like, I want their art to get better. Why can't I just apply it there to show them, like, oh, I used this many zig, I can use this many zigzag lines because I have a lot of kids who just rush through their art and it drives me nuts. But I want to just bring it into other subjects now. And that's going to be my new challenge and activity, I guess, for them. Do you nice. think, um, so the podcast that we listened to was oh, yeah. The Cult mm -hmm. of Pedagogy. I had to look it up while you were talking. Oh, so I could have told you. Sorry. I forgot what bad. it was called. But <laughs> on the spot. I'm not good on the spot. Um, do you think that some of the rubrics now that you've created uh, to differentiate your, your teaching and, your, and the learning for your students um, can be used like next year? Do you, do you, are you going to like organize them in a way that you'll have like this archive of resources. So each time you do it, it'll be a little bit less work. What do you think? Absolutely. No, I do. Because I actually play like was able to use and go back to every single one. So mm -hmm. as I was doing each lesson for induction for my ILP, I would go back to the one before and then just adjust that one. Um, so yeah, I will reuse them because they're also written not specifically for that story I'm reading. Like if I was reading a story about, well, I don't even know one, about plastic. I think we did one on plastic um, in the environment. It doesn't say anywhere in the hyper rubric talking about plastic or the environment because it's not the content there. It's teaching them how to find the main idea. Mm -hmm. And so they can be reused. So yes, it's kind of like any lesson plan, right? For teachers, we do all the work, especially as first year teachers. You're doing all the work and then setting it aside to reuse it. Yep. To get switched into another grade and then have to start all over. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah. I will reuse them, definitely. And I think I'll just have an entire file of them in Google that I can just pull for whatever lesson or subject I'm doing. So then what what advice would you would you give to someone who, who might want to first start trying them? Just do it. Try it. But also you almost have to have the, before you can write the hyper rubric, you need to know where your students are, right? You need to assess them already. So what I did was basically I gave them the thinking maps 
and then ask them to find the main idea of the story we read. And I just saw where they were all at. And that helped me to then fill in the criteria for the hyper rubric. Cause then I could go back and be like, okay, I have kids that don't even know how to fill out a thinking map. So that's going to be the first step of them even beginning to find a main idea. So their beginning one, their good start was I can, I think it was, I can start a thinking map. It wasn't even fill out a thinking map because they needed to figure out what words to put in a thinking map. That's how behind they were. And then I had other students who could fill out a thinking map. So I was like, okay, they're going to be in the approaching. So then maybe this whole week isn't on finding the main idea. Cause like I said, it's progression. Maybe this week, the hyper rubric is based on just filling out the thinking maps. And then next week will be now we're writing and finding the main idea. So I would tell them assess first, see where they're at. And then know it is a process. It's a long process and they're not going to, they're not going to be extending within that first lesson. So slowly they'll get there. But like I said, also they have to, you have to do it together. They have to watch me do it. And then we all do it as a class and we try to figure out, okay, here's where we just came up with, where do you think we are on this hyper rubric? And I would just do everything that they told me to do, filling them on. They'd be like, I think we're here. It's like, but look, we're applying. It says we've done this and this. Do you think we're applying it yet? No, no, we're all at approaching. So I was able to show them and have them think to self-assess, you know, as a class to be like, no, 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 you're right. We're not there yet. That way they can be honest with where they stand. And like I said, I had, I don't have one kid who ever put themselves at extending in the hyper rubric, which showed me they were listening. They knew how to actually follow along and do it before they got there. And almost every kid always put approaching notes. Like they were afraid to say they were applying it. So maybe that, maybe that's on me. And I'm like, good. <laughs> well, <laughs> Let me tell you, you're applying it. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, but to your point, but they always know that they can be better, right? Like they, right. Can, there's yes. always room for growth, especially in writing. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that applying the hyper rubric to writing um, is an easy, like natural place to start over another subject area? Like if you're a, you know, all area yeah. general ed uh, teacher, do you think that that's like a good, because uh, that's probably absolutely. where we use rubrics more often is in writing, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, yeah, because my goal was teach them how to use it with writing and then I can apply it to projects or other things they're mm-hmm. doing because then they actually understand it, you know, Um, but I definitely think that writing, I think writing not only for the students to understand it is the best place. I think it's the best place for any educator to start for themselves to understand how to do it, Mm -hmm. you know, because you can work out the kinks and go with it. Like I said, I had to change it multiple times until I probably was like on my, almost my 10th time, honestly, Mm -hmm. before I finally was like, oh, I got this. You know, because I was like, this isn't working, that I missed this. I wrote it and I missed this specific thing in there that's going to help them to advance. I have to add that in there. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a process in writing rubrics too. Like each time mm -hmm. I write a rubric for an assignment and then I start grading with it and I'm like, ooh, I missed this thing. Like they're missing this thing, but I didn't put it in the rubric so I can't like take off points for it. Um, So that's a nice reflection. Were you transparent about that reflection process with your students? Were you like, hey, I'm trying this new thing, so give me some grace? Because I do that, but I teach teachers, so I think that there's, like, more grace with teachers. Um, yes, I, I'm always transparent with them. My students know that I make mistakes and I mess up all the time. Um, in fact, I think I said something the other day that was totally off, and one of my newer students was like, you were wrong. <laughs> And I go, I am always wrong. And then one of my other students goes, if there's a day when Miss Symes just says something and she's right the first time, it's a weird day. And I was just like, <laughs> rude. But at the same time, I was like, you're right. you know. And so I always admit when I mess up, I always admit when I'm wrong. Also, because I want them to know it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's okay for them to mess up. It's okay to admit when you're wrong. Um, just own it and be responsible for it. So I would tell them, this is something I'm learning. This is something. And I would even come in the next day and be like, hey, I missed this part. I'm adding this to the approaching. So they could also see how it was developing and be like, okay, now go back and check where you're going to be. Um, so yeah, I am 
I'm always there with it. But also going back to your point, Malia, you said something about when you're, it's done, you're like, well, now I can't take off points for it because I didn't put it in there. That's the best part about a hyper rubric is there, it's not, there's no points. Mm. I'm not grading my students based off of 30 out of 30, 40 out of 40. They don't see any points. So it doesn't, it doesn't hurt them. I do tell them because I do have a lot of students who are unfortunately all about grades and being pushed with that. So I'll tell them like extending is way above the A. You know, applying is, hey, I've got it. That's an A. Approaching, you're at a B. And it's okay to be at a B because remember, that means we're normal. We've got it. We know what we're doing. So I talk to them like that. And that's how I actually, because I do have to do grades (laughs) in fourth grade, I will go back and in my book, in my grade book, I will put the grade, but they never see that. Mm -hmm. They just see it as approaching, applying, and extending. Um, And that's kind of the joy with, hey, I missed that. I can't take points off a hyper rubric. I don't need to worry about that. It's just, did they, did they meet that standard? You know, because for us, C, you meet the standard. B, you're understanding and using the standard. A, they're ready to move on. Yeah. So, and it kind of takes the pressure off of the students folk, like fixating on a grade, which, mm-hmm. you know, like I find my students will look at their grade and say, I don't understand why I lost two points. Well, did you read my feedback? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because my feedback tells you why you lost two points uh-huh. and it's two points. You still have an A. Like you need to settle it's two down. Points. Yeah. But I was one of those students, unfortunately. But yeah, just kidding. I did not lose points. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I did. But yes, no, exactly. That's totally my point is just they're not thinking about it as a point aspect. And mm-hmm. I think it helps them with their writing so much more. I don't put points or, or anything really on a lot of their work. I give them a sticker. Excellent job. Fantastic. Here's what you can do differently. Mm-hmm. They don't really ever know their grades, um, except for on spelling tests, because they can see what I mark wrong and they know. So mm-hmm. I'll put a percentage on those. Because that's um, easy math. But this now we're getting yeah. into, we could probably do another podcast on your um your capstone project on your, oh, your, gosh, yeah. <laughs> your um, <sighs> philosophy on grades and alternative assessments and things like that. So yes. And standardized. Is that published somewhere? Oh, you know what it is? It's on, I'm pretty sure I have it up on my, uh, my website for okay. my philosophy and everything, which is christiansigns.com. <laughs> okay. Uh, where they can then see it. Yes, because it's all digital. Okay, and so we'll have to post this podcast on there to support that. And if you wanted to share your hyper rubric process, we can work on doing that. Um, Yeah, but absolutely. Now we're going on tangents. (laughs) And it's it's up to me to bring us all back. Thank you, friend. Usually that's my job, but... Uh, True, true. (laughs) No, I want to, Christiana... I really want to go on back to to what you were you were commenting on, kind of in tongue in cheek about about your about your students saying saying that you're wrong. <laughs> um, but what what I gather from from that is that it's 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 a testament to who you are that that there's that there's students who are who are comfortable to tell you this um, yeah. because if you didn't have a type of trusting type of classroom, they would yeah. never say anything like like, yeah. like, like this. And so, um, with that in mind, uh, what are the one to two things now from, from your process of getting into teaching, um, going, going through a credential pro program and doing everything that you need to do in order to become a teacher, um, to where you are now, uh, if you could change things, mm-hmm. not just one thing, but change things about, about education, what would you do? Oh man, it's a loaded question. I know. Because I know. change about you mean besides the pay rate, I would, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kind no, of. you're not. <laughs> I, I say kind of. <laughs> I would change first, I think in the U.S., I'm going to speak for U.S. education because I think other parts of the world already have it correct. Um, and I think other parts of the world change and the U.S. doesn't. And that's part of the problem with our education. I think that we need to 
as we were just talking, focus less on, on grades and standardized testing. Like I said, especially right now, we do standardized, we need less testing because the standardized tests are punishing schools, punishing teachers and punishing students. And the whole goal of our, you know, nation is we take pride in our public schooling system. Everyone has the right to a free education and a good education at that. But then they structure it so much to the point where our kids stop exploring and we need our kids to stop testing and start learning and exploring. So I'm taking two weeks out of my curriculum right now, two weeks out of school for them to test when I could be hands in science and doing so much more, you know, exploring with them outside and they have to sit at a desk for two hours and read things that they don't even know about. Um, and we're test. I have to test a student who she has to do standardized testing and she doesn't even speak English because she's brand new from Mexico. So how does that one play out? You know, so I think our education system, we need to, I would love to say, just do away with them, get rid of standardized tests. I think that's our first step um, to having a successful system, education system. And I think that we need to focus more on the, the person, the student, student as a person. Um, which goes along with what we were saying, how I said the new teacher versus the older teacher and trying to understand like we are teaching humans. And I think they forget, like they say they don't want to be the counselor. They don't want to be, you know, um, the social worker. We kind of have to be because we're teaching young human beings and it's no longer just teaching them, you know, two plus two equals four. It's, two plus two equals four. And let me show you all the different ways that two plus two can equal four. And so it's, it's going to be a shift and I think it's going to take time, but I think we need to start focusing more on the little humans that we are teaching um, and kind of just shape them for the world and letting them like me and my mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. You know, we're, we're all going to make them, but that's how you learn, right? You can't learn without them. So, and that's my whole thing is I try to teach my students how to not be so hard on themselves. And before, like I did more prep instead of prepping them how to take the test and teaching them math, I did more prep on how to teach them that this test doesn't define who you are. It has nothing to do with the type of person you are, whether you do well or not. So... I don't even know if I answered your question. No, you did. But that's where I'm at. <laughs> change, change the system, get rid of, get rid of testing and get rid of grades. And we could, you know, I guess just, I would say, listen, you know, if I could change something, it would be to listen. We have to listen to our students. We have to listen to our kids. And I think that would make anyone a better teacher if you just sit back. So, yeah. Awesome. I think that leads into your call mm-hmm. to action, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to maybe think about that differently. What is your call to action? No, I would say that my, my call to action is to listen, you know, listen to your students and create that change and change along with them and adapt. You know, we have to be flexible as teachers and I need to know my class I never know what it's going to be like. I have a very special student in my class. I love dearly, but I know how he walks in Monday morning is going to change the entire day, possibly for me in my class. And I say Monday because Mondays are our hardest, uh, especially for him. His weekends are hard. Um, any day could go up in the air, but I need to learn how to change and adapt based off of what my students are feeling that day. So we often, I will come in and I'll be like, we need to circle up and do roses and thorns today because I know it was a hard weekend and I have to be okay with letting go. So of what my agenda was and what my plan was, I am not one of those teachers who has a plan book. I will say it right now. I am very much, I have like my schedule, but I'm also, I don't have a plan book because as teachers, we know you can plan out your whole week. You're going to get behind because you don't finish something and then your whole week's off anyway. So I plan day to day. Um, 
but you have to be my call to action. You have to be okay with letting go, but you also have to listen and have that empathy and also teach students empathy. So I've realized that I've actually done that with a lot of my students. And so I think in my bio, I said, I truly believe my students are going to change the world. And I do based off of what I've seen and what I've heard from them and how they've reacted. When I, I cried in front of my students this year, and it was amazing. But that's when I learned, like, you guys are good humans. Mm. And I've had many, like I said, I like to toot my own horn. I've had many, you know, educators and my administrators say what you, they've come and watched my class and they're like, those, what you've done and I see how they react to you. That's based off of your teaching and how you've, you know, treated and cared for them because that's not normal in a good way. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. And I've realized it is, I listen to them. I talk to them and I see what they need. And then I teach off of that. So it's a long call to action. (laughs) But it's a great call to action. (laughs) Change the world. Done. (laughs) <laughs> just like that easy what's next <laughs> check it off my list move on <laughs> uh christian you're an amazing teacher and thank you for sharing your experience with us i know it's just a little tiny piece of who you are and what you do in your classroom and what you share with your students but um truly inspirational to Many teachers, whether they've been doing it for a year or 20, um, I think that you are just so wise and beyond your years. So thank you for sharing that today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for saying those things. Mm -hmm. But thanks for having me again. It's always fun to be with you guys, both of you, even Fred. (laughs) (laughs) 